Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash Burnett. Welcome back to Berlin Inside Out, the foreign affairs podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations, the DGAP. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the Council, and I'm here with my friend and co-host Aaron Gash-Burnett, a journalist specializing in German politics. Now, a few weeks ago, we were joined by Her Excellency Olya Stefanishina, the Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine for European and Euro-Atlantic Integration, along with Bundestag members Christian Klink of the Social Democrats and Alexander Muller of the Free Democrats, as well as Mick Ryan, a retired Major General with the Australian Army and known to many of you as War in the Future on Twitter and writer of the Futura Doctrina uh, Substack. Today, we're continuing that discussion in our two-part series on German and Western strategy for Ukraine and on why the current course, particularly in the White House, but also in the Chancellery, is not serving Ukraine, not serving Germany, and not serving the wider Western interest. That's right, Ben. Now, we just saw uh, the European Council vote in favor of opening EU accession negotiations with Ukraine, with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz even reportedly telling Hungarian leader Viktor Orban to leave the room during the vote so the council could take a unanimous decision after Orban threatened to veto. Now, Ben, you are actually joining us from Vilnius this week with a few important updates on uh, this particular discussion. So what can you tell us about some of the discussions you've been having? Well, Aaron, that's right. I'm here in Vilnius, the, the beautiful capital of Lithuania, where the discussion on Ukraine and the discussion on Europe's strategic future is rather different than the ones that we're used to having in Berlin. And I'm here for the German-Lithuanian Forum, which is organized uh, particularly by Zygamantas Pavilionis and the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Lithuanian Parliament, the SEMAS. And it's great to see those two discursive worlds meeting in this forum, because here on the eastern flank, where the threat feels much closer to more people, um, the idea of why Ukraine must win and why we must get Ukraine into NATO and why that's all in our interest is very much clearer than it often is in Berlin. And Ziggy Mundus is actually a previous guest on our show too, right? He's uh, You can hear from him directly on Berlin side out when we interviewed uh, him and his Estonian counterpart, Marco Mikkelsen, as well as uh, former Deputy Prime Minister of Latvia, Artis Pabriks, for our Baltic episode. So uh, he's not one to mince words, as we know. No, and it's been very much that same tone of talk as we heard in episode 10 of uh, Berlin Side Out with the, the Baltic parliamentarians. And there's been a lot of very frank talk also about what's going on in the EU. While the general feeling is one of relief, that we managed to get over this hurdle uh, to provide what is quite honestly a much needed morale boost for Ukraine of the opening uh, of accession talks. There's also a feeling that this is not the right way to proceed in future. And it's certainly something I would share the opinion of, because what we've essentially done is dodged the political issue is that is at the heart of this. We've not solved the Orban problem. We've kicked the can down the road. And for the privilege of doing so, we've paid a 10 billion euro bribe. Now, just remember, Viktor Orban has 70 more opportunities, at least, to veto Ukraine's accession. So just to get over the first one, at a time that we hear all about budget crisis in Germany and elsewhere around Europe, we've engaged in some totally unstrategic spending to not solve the fundamental political problem at the heart of the European Union. So there's some, some anger about that. There's some disappointment about that. But it is tempered by the feeling that we did have to do something to give a morale boost to uh, Ukraine. 
The other big thing that's happening in town at the moment is that German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius is here. And he's here for a very good reason and something that is genuine progress for German defense policy and for Europe's uh, strategic positioning. He was here to sign and did indeed sign the roadmap for the deployment of the full German brigade. And it's actually going to be a newly constituted brigade here in Lithuania that represents a very significant upgrade on the previous uh, so-called enhanced forward presence. This will be the new tip of the spear of NATO's uh, defense force uh, on the eastern flank. And it's something that's really very, very welcomed by Lithuanian politicians and Lithuanian people of all political stripes. So this is something that Germany does deserve uh, credit for. Now, that's planned to become fully operational by 2027. The Lithuanians are working on the infrastructure, on the basing. The Germans are putting together the capacity to actually properly equip that brigade. Big questions remain, though, over... Beyond the tip of the spear, where is the follow-on force? How could this actually be backed up? And as part of NATO's move to uh, deterrence by denial, which means to defend every inch of NATO territory, there will be questions that need to be answered about that, particularly in light of what Oliver Moody told us back on episode nine about the failure of the um, interoperability between NATO states in the exercise Titan Shield uh, earlier this year. What's also the mood there with respect to the possibility of Orban's um, being able to veto again, as you say, another uh, potentially 70 times? Uh, we did hear uh, in uh, the speech that uh, Her Excellency Olha Stefanishna made uh, at Degape a few uh, weeks ago, uh, and she didn't name Hungary by name, but she said, we all know who I'm talking about, people who would seek to veto the future of Europe, as she put it. Well, it's interesting to be here in Lithuania for that discussion, because Gabrielis Landsbergis, the Lithuanian foreign minister, he said very clearly, and he said this in public, that uh, Hungary, under Viktor Orban, stands against everything that the European Union and NATO stand for. And that, frankly, they should they should leave. Um, and I think this is right. I mean, basically, the Hungarian people have chosen Viktor Orban four times. There is a consistent groundswell of support, a consistent majority of support for Viktor Orban. And so Hungarians have made this choice. But I think that one of the reasons for that is because they haven't had to make uh, or they haven't had to bear the consequences of that choice. It seems to them at the moment that they can have their cake, eat it and not get fat, to use uh, Jan Eichhorn's memorable phrase on, on our episode six. Um, by having both Viktor Orban and membership in the European Union. And I think we need to really make it very clear to them that that can't not continue. And so this is going to take some serious political courage because there's a lot of people who would say, oh, but we can't kick them out under the current rules of the EU. But as I've said before on this show and elsewhere, uh, we followed the rules and burned the house down is not a credible approach to politics. And it's not something our kids or grandkids would thank us for. So there has to be some creative thinking about how to do this. And there would be steps forward that could be taken via Article 7. But I think we have to get real about actually protecting our institutions and making sure they're fit for purpose. Well, definitely. And we hear people say, well, we can't kick them out. But then, you know, where is Article 7 being put on the table by the same people that say that we can't kick them out? We've often talked about the restrictive comfort of legalism, as you like to call it, that, you know, follow the rules and it doesn't really get us anywhere. But we're not actually using all of the, the legal instruments we actually have. So we're not even there yet. I mean, there's more to even try and do with respect to um, 
as uh, Stefanishna put it, those who would seek to veto the future of Europe in her particular speech, which you're going to hear on the show here in a moment. Indeed, Aaron, that's right. And it's about understanding what are our true interests and how we serve them and how that relates to how we protect our values. And another one of those key issues for that is about the outcome of the conflict in Ukraine, which fundamentally we need to win. There is no stable security order in Europe without a Ukrainian victory or uh, without Ukraine in NATO. And that has to be basically a prerequisite for uh, Ukraine actually entering the European Union. It can make progress before then, but in order for that reform and reward cycle to really kick in, in order for the investment that's needed for Ukraine's recovery, and in order to give a credible, hopeful future to Ukrainians, we need to take those steps. And that's why we convened the event at DGAP uh, a few weeks ago with Olya Stefanishina because we don't think Europe and Germany's strategy is currently on track for that. Indeed, Chancellor Olaf Scholz still won't say that Ukraine should win. And nothing in his strategic approach to this suggests that he wants Ukraine to win. The expert group that stands behind this, the action group Zeitenwender, from the DJP, which I lead here at the Council on Foreign Relations, um, our analysis shows that this is not in the interests of Europe, it's not in the interests of Germany, and of course it's not in the interests of Ukraine. So... That's one thing I've also been here in Vilnius to do is to convey that message as well as to present a new report on the Titan vendor that we'll talk about at the end of the show and which you can find in our show notes. But before we hear from uh, Deputy Prime Minister Olya Stefanishina, we've got her full speech at DJP about to come up before we speak to Roderick Kizaveta. It's important just to say a few more words about why we convened that event and what these costs to Europeans are of not winning. As we've heard a lot about recently, whether it's from uh, Valery Zaluzhny, the head of the Ukrainian armed forces, or from various experts around Europe and around the US, the current Western approach to the war means that Ukraine is heading for a long, bloody positional or attritional war, which some may consider to be a stalemate. Or we're heading for a forced settlement that would reward Russian aggression. And we don't think those outcomes, as we say, serve the interests of European security or democratic ordering around the world. It would send a clear signal to autocratic regimes that we cannot get our act together and are not willing to stand up for our, our values and for that order when it's threatened. Now, all Europeans and all people in democratic countries will bear costs of this, but Germans perhaps even more so than others because of their economic dependence on stability, order, and liberal norms, but also due to Germany's lack of preparedness for the heightened level of military threat that would come. Let's be very clear, this is not in Ukraine's interest. The current likely outcomes are especially bad for, for Ukraine, where soldiers and civilians will continue to die, but no decisive breakthrough will be achieved as the conflict drags on. The pressure to negotiate will grow, which would re reward Russia and condemn Ukrainians on occupied territory to Moscow's brutal rule. Now, a Ukraine that's attacked or threatened by Russia will not be able to be properly reconstructed. The private investment's not going to come, and Ukrainian refugees will have no incentive to return home. So that imposes more costs on Ukraine, but also on other European societies that are hosting those refugees. And so far, it's interesting to note that 60% of the money that Germany's spent on supporting Ukraine has gone on supporting refugees, which, while that's admirable, doesn't increase their security or ours in the long run. What's worse is that rather than focusing on the necessary tasks of recovery and reform and continuing the stunning civic progress that Ukraine's made, even under these most trying of conditions, Ukraine would be forced to become something of a garrison state to defend itself from potential renewed Russian attack. And make no mistake, Russia is not a reliable negotiating partner. Russia would test any peace that was there to, again, test our resolve, test our willingness to get involved and do the right thing by Ukraine. So Ukraine would become a continual pressure point under these circumstances, um, which is one of the reasons why there could be no stable European security order. 
under such a, a settlement. But it's really bad for European security too. So rather than defeating and properly deterring Russia in Ukraine, not doing so raises the threat to European NATO members who would need to build their capabilities to a far greater extent than they're doing now. Now, we've heard a lot about Russia already being economically geared up for war, um, and it could quickly rearm. And we've seen recent estimates by DGAP of between six to 10 years of a potential new renewed Russian threat. The analysis here in Vilnius and in, in Warsaw and elsewhere is closer to three years after the end of intense hostilities in Ukraine that we would see a renewed Russian threat. So we have to get our act together and very quickly if we don't defeat Russia in Ukraine. Because the Kremlin would be emboldened by its gains, and by particularly by our failure to show sufficient resolve, and would use Ukraine as a pressure point, it would threaten Western reconstruction projects, and could continue to weaponize migration flows against us, but it would also undoubtedly seek other pressure points, as it had in the past, and it's proved adept in the past at exploiting our weakness and our timidity. Crucially, this would also see the return of one of the great fears of the Cold War, that the Russians, or then the Soviets, would be able to win without firing a shot, because we would go soft, because we would crumble, and it would actually allow Russia to achieve its aims without us really standing up. This is, of course, terrible for global order as well. It sends a signal to China that we won't stand up for our values, we won't stand up for democracies when they're threatened, and it sends a signal to Tehran and to Hamas and other actors that even in the most morally clear-cut of situations, right on our doorstep, where our interests are clearly at stake as well as our values, we can't get it right. So what hope would there be for us to get it right in much more complex situations around the world? So it would raise the likelihood of further conflict in the Middle East and raise the possibility of war over Taiwan. All that takes US attention and military assets away from Europe, which further raises the cost uh, to European allies of deterring Russia. And that's if the Biden, if, and that's if Biden and the Democrats win, let alone what a Trump administration would do. Whatever the situation in the US, Europe has to have a more credible security offer. And the particular uh, emphasis on that is that we have to do more for our own security. Now, that's important to get Ukraine into NATO. It's important to prepare for our own security. Another outcome of the current course in Ukraine is that it's particularly bad for Germany, which not only relies on that global order, as I've mentioned, but which remains grossly underprepared to deal with the enhanced threat. The costs of failed deterrence, as Ben Hodges told us on episode three, are far higher than the costs of deterrence. And Berlin's already found that out. And Aaron, you've pointed this out too. Rapid spending on um, energy price caps, 200 billion euros found at short notice, not to mention the 100 billion on uh, defense, the Sondervermogen in order to react to a situation where deterrence failed. And we're now seeing the backtracking on that. We're seeing the difficulties Germany has in getting to 2% of GDP. But forget 2% of GDP. If we don't win this war in Ukraine and properly deter Russia, we're going to need Cold War levels of spending. Think 3 to 3.5%, 125 billion euros a year. And in this manufactured budget crisis that we see around the German debt break, the Schuldenbremse, that's going to be incredibly hard to do. But those are the capabilities Germany will need, and they will have to be found very, very quickly. Germany will have to host refugees for much longer and risk wasting money on reconstruction that could all be destroyed in the new Russian attack. All of this, of course, takes money and political bandwidth from the country's green and technological transitions, and it makes its geoeconomic situation more precarious. And let's be very clear, getting the geopolitics right and getting the green transition right are not an either or. You have to do both. But at the fundament of this, if you want to do both, and if you want to actually create a better future, you need security to do so. And security in Europe means victory for Ukraine.
So there's a few recent developments that really, really come uh, to bear uh, immediately in terms of some of the themes that we are discussing on this particular episode. One thing that we're not seeing um, that we really, really need to see, in my view, would be Germany uh, really resolutely also getting behind uh, Ukraine and NATO, NATO membership for Ukraine. That really would be uh, a piece of deterrence. Um, that's something that we're going to talk uh, quite a bit about today. It's something that Olaf Scholz hasn't committed to so far, uh, along with uh, dithering on certain weapons deliveries, particularly uh, Taurus missiles. And that is also why we would argue you know, that such a, an approach is reckless long term, as we've been talking about here and as you've been telling us, that locks in a conflict that is right on Europe's doorstep. And if we can't solve that, then how else are we going to solve other issues? But also, as we've been discussing, missing the opportunities um, that integrating Ukraine in the Euro-Atlantic uh, community would have. And I would argue myself that integrating Ukraine half in that community, so into the EU, uh, without integrating into NATO, the other half, as I would uh, argue, carries, uh, you know, it, it, there's no security guarantee, as we often talk about, that um, that actually allows you to have economic development and all of the various uh, benefits that come as a result of uh, of Ukraine being into the EU, so we really do need both. We need the we need the full uh, plate that's on offer, not half. You're right, Aaron, and this is something very interesting. There's a lot of talk um, around as to why uh, Germany blocked uh, Ukraine's NATO membership at the Vilnius summit here here in town in the summer, and it's been interesting to hear that part of the reason was still at this stage of things. But this is back in July, so more than a year into the war, was still to avoid overly punishing, isolating, or picking on Russia. That's still part of the attitude that is driving German strategy, apparently, which is a, a remarkable state of affairs and one that is certainly not shared by Baltic allies or by many others, including even by France at this stage. So Germany risks being really left behind on that. Another point that's come up in discussion um, at the Lithuanian-German Forum this morning was that uh, currently 37% of Germans favor Ukraine's EU membership, 39% are against. And you and I always talk about the opportunities um, for, of Ukrainian membership, but that's not something that's part of the debate in Berlin. And this is where a point that you and I have made time and again on this show, the role of leadership, the role of expert and uh, political discourse in influencing public opinion. If all the German public here are about the costs, the obstacles and the difficulties to getting Ukraine into the EU, it's no wonder that not enough of them support this yet. Let's make it very clear. Ukraine's EU membership and NATO membership is the geopolitical opportunity of a generation for Europe and for Europe's security and its better future. But that's not an argument that's yet being made well enough or strongly enough by the very top level in Berlin. So let's see if we can change that over the coming few months. You know, we have a country on our doorstep that is has a very experienced and battle-hardened military at this point, uh, that is an agricultural superpower, that has a huge market, that has a very resilient economy and people. All of these things would, would obviously be huge assets for Europe. We don't talk enough uh, about that in Berlin, not nearly enough. Of course, there's going to be costs, but there's a lot that we get for it. As you know, if you as with any high-yield investment, you have to put something in up front. Um, 
So uh, on these particular issues, last time we heard from the Social Democrats and the Liberal Free Democrats on these questions. Today we'll be hearing from the Christian Democrats who are in opposition, uh, specifically one of the CDU's biggest foreign policy experts, Roderick Kiesewetter, is joining us. Uh, but first, Ben, we have a special thank you and shout out for one of our most dedicated listeners and NAFO fellas, right? That's absolutely right, Aaron. We do. Marie Levasor. This episode of Berlin Inside Out is dedicated to you with thanks and in huge gratitude and in the hope that your beloved grandsons, uh, Ellie and Leo, will take up your warrior spirit going forward. Marie, it's been a pleasure to share part of our journey with you and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your support for Ukraine, first and foremost, but also for Berlin Inside Out and for what we're trying to do for neo-idealism and for a better grand strategy for liberal democracies that would actually give Ellie and Leo the chance to live in that world safe for democracy in which people such as them in free societies can thrive. So from here in Vilnius, and I'm sure from Aaron in Berlin, over to Trois-Rivières, Three Rivers in Canada, uh, we say thank you and Merry Christmas to you and yours. Merci, Marie. Uh, thank you so much uh, to you and your family. We hope you and everyone else listening enjoys our discussion today and also with Roderick later. Uh, first up, uh, let's hear a bit of Olha Stefanishna's speech here at the council from a few weeks ago uh, to really help us lay out what's at stake. Let's listen in. Dear colleagues and friends, uh, many familiar faces, it's a great pleasure for me to start my traveling around Europe, I had a very important meetings uh, of uh, the EU leaders uh, in December from Berlin. We understand that gradually, the longer the war is lasting, the more questions being raised. We hear um, and uh, we hear there, uh, here and there a lot of questions about what is the mood in Ukraine. And this is basically the first question I received today over my meetings in, in, a, in a chancellery. What is the mood in Ukraine? How do you feel? And I think our answer to this question is the answer to many other questions you hear in a, your domestic discourse. In Ukraine, nothing has changed. We still have a war. We're still fighting the war. We're still defending ourselves. Our people are still dying. Our armed forces are still fighting. And our resolve is the same. Yes, we're tired. Yes, we're exhausted. We're frightened uh, with the horrors of war. But the choice we made once on 24th of February and 10 years ago when the revolution of dignity started has not changed. We are a country which will fight for its democracy, freedom, for its serenity, for the ability to live our lives the way we always wanted to live since we gained the independence and since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So in Ukraine, things are not changing. What is changing is that from Kiev, we are watching how things are changing in a global narrative. We see the media headlines about the war of fatigue, um, about helping Ukraine to keep fighting, not winning, about, um, uh, about messages saying that the war is lasting too long. So maybe we should make a revision of everything we did and leave Ukraine alone in that regard. And unfortunately, this is something I heard uh, in a couple of uh, major European capitals already. And these questions are even been formally put in on the table by some uh, unexpectedly very well knowers of 
how it's been under Russian occupation of those countries who have been under Russian occupation decades ago. They're putting this question. So nothing has changed in Ukraine. Things are changing in those countries who are standing with Ukraine since the beginning of the full-scale war. And I think it's really important that we keep um, being focused on things which needs our attention. For Ukraine, the focus has not changed. We really need to win and we really need to survive throughout the war. And uh, this requires everything what it takes, what is needed to reach these two goals. Now we understand, believe me, on 24th of February, every morning waking up, I was thinking of two things. First is that, thanks God, I'm alive and my family is alive. Uh, my friends and colleagues are alive and somebody has died. Somebody has not survived this another day. But the second thing we always knew is that we have to keep on doing everything we can every day, as long as it takes to bring back our lives. We were standing on the Maidan 10 years ago, the fight and the choice we have made. And 10 years of this road has brought us to where we are. On one side, the decision to start the accession talks and become a member of European Union. On the other side, fighting literally with the arms, uh, with the ammunition for its choice and, uh, and freedom. And in that regard, we, of course, were waiting and expecting that the war will be over soon, that we will succeed on a battlefield that we will accumulate necessary military assistance, that the Russia will um, step away under the, the pressure of the sanctions. It is all happening. But the only thing we've learned over this more than 600 days is that we should not count the dates. The support and the commitment and the resolve should not depend on a day of war. It should be a decision and it should not be calculated by the days. And if we will be looking from this perspective, we will see a huge, huge evolution. Just less than one year ago, President announced the 10-piece formula on the G20 summit. It was just a proposal on the table out of 10 points. And everybody thought that the other day there will be a summit of leaders and the leaders might agree on this 10-piece formula but things went different way. We see now all 27 EU leaders unanimously supported peace formula. All 31 NATO ally supported peace formula. We have three rounds of um, consultations at the level of the security advisors with more than 50 countries on the table, including China, Asia, and Africa. We have an agreement that all those working on this document stand firmly on the principles of the UN Charter related to respect of the territorial integrity and sovereignty. We are ahead of decision on managing the confiscated assets of the Russian Federation. We have a very strong state from transatlantic to Europe and Asia on inability to apply any nuclear blackmail. And these are just the three points of the peace formula. We have a discussion on the exchange of the prisoners of war and it is happening while still more than 4,000 Ukrainians, both civil and military, are the prisoners of war in the Russian Federation. So we should not wait for the date. We should see things evolving. It might take longer, but the progress is there. 
And whenever we hear the discussion on the future negotiations, nothing has changed. It's really clear that the negotiations are the normal effect and the outcome of every war. But the principles matter. And the principles are set out in these 10 points. And uh, the principles and the peace formula and the uh, restoration of the security in Europe will be the next step expected from European Union. And that's why we are so committed to the decisions we expect on 15th of December, because what comes after the end of the war? What comes of the victory? We need to preserve the victory. We need to preserve the peace and we need to start the new wave of the evolution of the Europe, of the broader Europe, with everyone, everybody on board. And the security is guaranteed by the union, by the new union reformed uh, with a broader group of players and uh, all European approach indeed. So uh, this is uh, a very clear vision on our side. And uh, we do not count the days. We count by actions and the progress. The other day will come and the other progress we will have on a 10-piece formula. The other day will come and we will present you the future force design of the Ukrainian army. We will present and show you the vision of Ukrainian sovereign defense. We have already implemented all the decision of the Vilnius summit in NATO. We have prepared the new program of interoperability with the Alliance. We are there. We are moving forward. We have managed to reform our country throughout the war with all the setup of institutions related to the rule of law, accountability in place, uh, reforms done, country is running. We still need a lot, but we stick to a big picture every day. We do not count by days. And in that regard, um, it's very important for us to have this feeling and clarity in every capital. The one lesson we learned from the Vilnius NATO, NATO summit is that it's so much important that the decisions of the leaders are backed up by the public opinion, backed up by par uh, parliaments, and backed up by a broader perception. We see now the tendency in many capitals uh, the tendency to be more focused only on domestic issues because the leadership, the commitment, the call of time and history requires serious decisions, serious leadership and serious responsibility. This is a fantastic platform for populist and radical groups to raise their voices, to get their shares in the, in the parliaments and, and in the governments. And this is a challenge. And that's why we should explain and stick to the bigger agenda, to stick to the bigger picture and stick together and speaking about the unity, it's not only about being unanimous in some decisions, it's about talking to each other, convincing each other and helping those who are still in doubt or who are trying to veto the future of Europe. Speaking to them and taking the responsibility of this veto, because speaking of the veto of one country on 15th of December, this will not be a veto of one country. This would be the irresponsibility of the others, those who were not building this consensus, who were not working on focusing on a, on a bigger picture, on the future of Europe. So um, I guess we all understand what I'm referring to, and this is how we read it, this is how we treat it. Uh, and uh, a part of it 
there are so many things that do not come unnoticed in Ukraine. First, it's an enormous gratefulness of Ukrainian government, of every Ukrainian who have been warmly hosted in Germany since the beginning of war. Thousands and thousands of Ukrainians who are really found a shelter in Germany, across many parts of the Germany, their families, those who cannot come back so far, the military and financial support which has been provided to Ukraine. And we know it has always been complicated to seek a consensus for decisions on the military support. Nobody would have imagined that the German tanks will be on Ukrainian soil, defending the freedom and democracy. This, from the perspective of the rational thinking and a discussion, this is totally not rational, but this is what is needed. This is what it takes. And if it takes more tanks, if it takes more decisions on Taurus, if it takes more decisions or air defense, as long as it takes, these decisions should be taken. I understand that this is part of the complicated discourse, but again, nothing has changed in Ukraine in terms of our resolve and commitment. We understand that the failure of Ukraine is a domino. You've already seen in the media, and we have received this information even earlier, that Russia is playing on its ordinary playbook, but the scale is only growing with a full scale with the annexation of Crimea and the occupation of Donbass, 10 years after we saw a full-scale invasion. Now what we see that there is an accumulation of more military capacity to another military attempt to gain, uh, to gain the power, to put its tent on our world, on our life, and it's not limited by the borders of Ukraine. And this is a challenge. And uh, the only message I am really keen to bring to you is that you should never doubt in Ukraine. We have never, never been letting you down. We have stood on the streets wrapped in the European flags dying for it. Ten years after we are there, Russia has been cutting the gas, lowering the pressure in the pipeline. Um, uh, our soldiers, what they do, they protect the pipeline and the transit to Europe with their lives. You have not face the, the, the effect of this blackmail to Ukraine. We have been deterring. We have been faithfully implementing the association agreement and we become a faithful part of the free trade area. We become part of the European internal market in many, many endeavors. And uh, we have shown our strong commitment to deliver on political criteria for us to be able to make a decision to open the accession talks. It is vital because the new financial assistance is needed to survive and support Ukrainian budget, to proceed with the enlargement reforms. And for that, you need clarity. And this clarity is brought by the decision to start the accession talk. We need to preserve the positive momentum of the enlargement, uh, which has been revived by basically by Ukraine applying for a membership on the fourth day of war. And, and we have been the driving force of the positive energy of enlargement. And now within more than a decade, the Western Balkans really hear the message from European Union that actually you are going to be a member of European Union and this is for sure. And whatever is needed to make it happen is done and will be done. And we really need to preserve this momentum. So um, I want to, to thank you all for being here today, for being vocal and public, 
for helping Ukrainians and helping us to be heard around the globe. We really need to stay focused and I hope you will help us to make all of it happen. Thank you. And to talk further about how Western and particularly German strategy needs to change in order to be fully committed to supporting Ukraine on a path to victory and also to inclusion in the wider Euro-Atlantic family, which uh, came out very, very strongly in that speech that you just heard. Uh, we're joined this week by Roderick Kiesewetter. He is currently a member of the Bundestag's Foreign Affairs Committee and Deputy Chair of the Intelligence Oversight Committee. Uh, he was also previously the spokesperson for the Christian Democrats, who he sits with in Parliament on the Defence Committee in the Bundestag. But of course, you've had a storied career uh, before you actually joined Parliament in 2009. That's right, reaching the rank of Colonel in the famed 7th Panzer Division of the German Bundeswehr. Uh, so Roderick, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show today. We know each other through the action group Titanvender here at DGRP, and you've been a consistently strong advocate of Ukrainian victory. Why is it so important for Germans that Ukraine wins? Yeah, thank you very much indeed, also for inviting me. Well. It has several reasons why it is important from a German perspective. First of all, Germany's founding act after the Second World War was based on a horrible bloodshed of the blood of Ukrainians and Belarusians and Jews on the soil of Ukraine and on the soil of Belarus. And it's our responsibility that this is not repeated again. Second, we have a strong interest that the United States see a fair burden sharing it's a war on the European soil. However, the Americans support by at least 60 to 65% of the military support. Third, we see that our own capabilities are shrinking, that we are not able to implement armed forces who are able for war fighting. That's also what uh, Defense Minister Pistorius said. And fourth, we all see that the Ukrainian people need a perspective, that they want to be part of the European family, members of NATO, and the way how we support it will exclude them in the long run. And for Germany, it's of utmost importance that the roots of conflicts are derooted and that countries like Ukraine can keep their sovereignty in the borders of 1991 and that the great or at least the large threat from Russia is changed into the acceptance of the right of existence of all its neighbor states. So if this all is failing, Germany will receive a number of refugees from Ukraine, but the rule-based order which we defend and which is our founding act is hollowed out and Ukraine deteriorates to a role model for Iran versus Iraq, for China versus Taiwan and Serbia against Kosovo and Bosnia. So it's much more than a war of Ukraine. It's a war against a threat country, a terrorist state, which is hollowing out the rule-based international order and is trying to build a multipolar world against the rule-based order. Yes, absolutely. So as well as past historical responsibility, this is about the present and securing Germany in the present, but also securing Germany's perspective of a future, Europe's stable future, as well as Ukraine's future. And that, as you've argued in the past, means also bringing uh, Ukraine into NATO as well as into the European Union. That doesn't seem to be um, an argument that 
across the political spectrum here in Berlin is accepted yet. What, what are the obstacles to that and why should we overcome them? It is also an historic question because Germany in its past, before the founding of 1949, didn't accept the right of existence of the countries between Germany and Russia. And there is a fear in the countries in between that in Germany might raise a kind of neo-colonialism so that our neighbors between Moscow and Berlin are not seen as fully sovereign countries. And if we give up the support of Ukraine and if the per German population doesn't understand, then Moldova will come under threat, the Baltic states, and then the war is at the borders, not only of the Baltic states, but uh, at the borders of Poland and Romania. So this is also of utmost importance that uh, the German population learns again from history, but looks into the future that we have a peaceful Europe, a European Union, which is not impressed by flight migration, by threat and terrorism, but by a perspective that the European Union is a strong transatlantic pillar and is as well a role model for the uh, young African states as well as for countries who are looking how the rule-based order can be defended independent from uh, its position in, in Western Europe. It's the position of the free world, which you find in the Indo-Pacific, in Africa, and also in some countries in the near Middle East. Right. This is about, fundamentally, it's a key pillar in the fight for a world that's safe for democracy, in which free societies can thrive, be that in the Indo-Pacific or be it right next to us here at, at home. But... Still, here we are in Berlin in Groundhog Day, Aaron, with the, the Taurus missiles. We've heard all about this with the Leopard tanks last year, and now here we are again with the Taurus. Well, we keep seeming to have the same debate over and over again. This sense of deja vu is something we've talked about uh, a lot, and um, certainly Ben and you and I have talked about how we keep questioning why we need to do this over and over and over again. Um, if inevitably we seem to know what we need to do, which is to actually deliver what Ukraine needs to win, in this case, Taurus. Um, so going to that um, whole question of Taurus missiles for a second, um, the Sereu, which you, of course, um, represent in Parliament, uh, recently called an emergency debate in the Bundestag to deliver uh, Taurus missiles. Um, first of all, why was this even necessary to do? Um, because we have also heard from uh, other members of the auction group, that there is a parliamentary majority and a public majority for deliveries already, uh, and that the problem very clearly seems to be the chancellery. And also, what is the, what's the current status of that process? What happens next? Unfortunately, it's a mess. And I brought up the debate in May this year. It was my burning will, I would like to say, to raise up, to bring up this topic in the German political scene. Why? As we have experienced, Russia is trying to overrun Ukraine via Crimea. More than 80% of the Russian supply goes via Crimea and also a huge number of vessels of the Black Sea Fleet as well as of missile launchers on Crimea are shooting all over Ukraine. So with Taurus, having a distance of about 500 kilometers, uh, you are able to destroy the lines of communication, the supply chains of Russia. Russia is just building out of reach of Atekams and out of reach of Skalp and Storm Shadow, the smaller sisters of Taurus, new uh, railway um, tracks. And now we could destroy it. 
And there have been also signals from our defense minister, as well as from our uh, foreign minister and the finance minister, when they visited uh, Kiev, that they signaled it's only a question of time. So our friends in Ukraine, in, in, uh, Ukraine hoped for Taurus for the release, and the uh, United Kingdom and France dovetailed their support with Scalp and Storm Shadow from May to November. They are running out. And a precondition of Germany to deliver Taurus was also that the Americans provide Ukraine with attackers. This has also happened so far. So um, it is the personal conviction of the Chancellor that he doesn't want to deliver it because Crimea has a symbolic meaning for Putin. And he is a man in living in self-deterrence, overruling the very practical ideas from the defense ministry and the foreign ministry, and also not giving our armaments industry the necessary leeway to improve all of the 600 available Taurus. We have now available about 300, but Germany has used in the last 15 years about only 150, so 150 would be free. And all who are listening, I believe it's a question of credibility because with Taurus, it is possible to cut off the Russian lines of communication to Crimea for a certain time. And in this time, the Russian troops have no supply of fuel and ammunition and other belongings or, or desirable goods. And so they have to give up. And this is, and this is key. The German debate of Taurus shows that there is a difference in the war aim, in the aim of this war. The defense minister and the foreign minister say Ukraine must win in its borders of 91. And the chancellor said, well, he's supporting Ukraine in the defense of its national territory and integrity. And, I, and Russia must not win and Ukraine must not lose. And I asked him, why don't you saying uh, Ukraine must regain its borders and you are supporting Ukraine in regaining its borders? He said, well, you have listened very carefully. I have nothing to add. So it is the symbol that Scholz doesn't want Ukraine to win. And now he's also losing his minimum aims, minimum goals that Ukraine must not lose. And this is the, the lack of reputation. It's a complete failure of his policy. It's more or less self-deterrence by Russia. And we see him embraced by Putin. So what exactly explains um, Schultz's thinking here? We've heard from you is that Taurus is very powerful and is able to do uh, things that even Storm Shadow, for example, is not able to do. And that indeed, uh, it is perhaps because Taurus would be so successful at targeting communication lines, um, for example, the Kerch Bridge. Is it simply that Schultz is scared that Taurus would then make uh, the Ukrainians too successful at taking uh, back Crimea or actually you know, being able to get a, a proper um, upper hand? And if that is the case, um, why? Because uh, that doesn't seem to really be in the interest of, of Germany or of the West, especially if we really do want uh, Ukraine to be a member of uh, the European Union, which Schultz has even said he wants. So what explains this kind of inexplicable thinking here? It doesn't really make sense strategically. To yeah, good, good luck. We bring you on Berlin side out to explain the inexplicable. <laughs> Roderick, Roder, to you. I would really also to worsen the situation because He's in addition, he's saying, well, the UK and France are allowed 
to to help Ukraine in a manner which Germany is forbidden. And we have checked this. There are no technical obstacles. Uh, there are no legal obstacles to deliver this. So it is simply a false information, a fake news. Others would say it's a lie. But on the other hand, you have mentioned it in the parliament, there's a majority, but there's also loyalty. And a chancellor cannot afford to have an illoyal coalition. Therefore, it is the glue, the loyalty, not to overrule the chancellor, not to damage the coalition. However, they all have their fists in the pocket. They are all quite sour. And this is not only in the Liberal Party and in the Green Party, it's also in the Social Democratic Party. So the key question is why? And I believe there are several triggers for him or several layers for Scholz. First of all, he was very familiar with the Soviet Union and with the former GDR. When he was a young man heading the Young Socialists in Germany in the 80s prior to unification, he was not supporting the double-track approach of NATO. He wanted also kind of disarmament of Germany. So probably he feels threatened or guilty because now he's not representing the politics as of that time. Second, when you listen carefully to him, when he is asked about why the support is, why uh, Russia is acting, he's only saying, well, Russia is wanting to gain territory and Ukraine is defending its territory. He never mentions the war crime in talk shows. Sometimes he mentioned it in speeches. So in my point of view, he is trying to touch Russia with gloves. And we are not quite clear what is the reason. Are there dependencies? The same is uh, with this, with the pro Chinese procurement of parts of the Hamburg Harbor. Against any advice of our secret services and of three ministries, he conducted this selling of, of the harbor, parts of the harbor. And he feels probably also encouraged by a very reluctant president of the United States, who is not very much in favor of the very weak uh, European military support, and probably shying to do much more which is needed because Germany is not delivering Taurus. The way out would be that some other European nations encourage Germany that they show a fairer burden sharing. And this would also help the Americans to explain to their population why they support so strongly Ukraine. But then we need really Taurus. I believe it's a psychological question, it's not a legal question. It's a question of dependency and self-deterrence, and probably historians will try to find it out. It's also linked, I, I see, with Nord Stream 2, whereas the Scandinavian states say all roads lead to Moscow. Our chancery is promulgating that probably we cannot trust Ukraine. So we see that there is a very strange assessment of information where other countries come to other conclusions. And this is a little bit isolating Germany and is reducing also the trust 
in our country. Yes, absolutely. Germany's reputation has taken a battering, despite actually what has been a huge amount in absolute terms of material support that has now been provided. It's not been quick enough, it's not been when it's been needed, and it's still nowhere near enough. But nonetheless, Germans have spent a lot of money only to have their reputation battered. And it seems to me as though in this self-manufactured budget crisis that Germany has put itself in, the Charles Chancellery is still choosing the most expensive way to support Ukraine, ultimately, and what will end up costing Germany a huge amount more, not only in terms of its reputation, but when Putin is not properly deterred, the need comes to truly arm to defend ourselves. Germany is promulgating, especially the Chancellor, that we are the second largest supporter of Ukraine. Yes, in numbers, or if you count the euros, but the, the composition of our assistance is very interesting. We have already invested about 22, 23 billion euros. 65% of it, more than 14 billion euros, is the social supply and support of Ukrainian refugees in Germany. So the more Ukrainians leave the country and go to Germany, the stronger the German support. The military support is only about 15%, 3.7 or nearly 4 billion euros. The civil support is stronger than the military one. It is more than 4 billion euros. So we are really masters in announcement. We will double our military support in the course of next year. But I look to the numbers and facts. So this will be delivered by the end of next year. So until that, another year where we show the support mainly via social welfare in Germany. Yes, part of the problem is that's not an investment in anyone's future. That's just dealing with the symptoms rather than the causes. And so again, it's not a long-term solution for Ukrainians, and it's not actually giving Ukraine what it needs to win. And this, as we say, bakes in all those costs of defeat. And this is precisely what we heard Minister Stefanishina talking about before. But you mentioned the role of other European powers. Others have taken the lead. Others have been far stronger. But what is the role of the various political parties within Germany here? Because what you said before, I found extremely interesting party loyalty and coalition loyalty seems to be being put ahead of national interest. But how can the opposition go about changing that? And what are you doing to make that change? Well, we keep the issue of Taurus and more military support on the agenda. Um, we have had our application last week, but it was put with the majority of the coalition into the Committee of Foreign Affairs. And this resolution now was put from the agenda with the majority of the coalition. Yeah. And we now have to do this procedure 10 times. That means about half a year at least. And then we can bring it back into the parliament by probably before the summer break, hopefully, of next year. So this is really a mess. And as you mentioned, strategic interests and national interests of Germany. We are learning since about eight years, since we firstly formulated national interests in the White Book of for defense. Our country was not used to, well, formulate, delineate, and then apply for national interests. That means also to set priorities and to fully flesh this with the respective resources, with money, with the respective budget. And when you look to our national security strategy, there are about six dozens of proposals without any priority and without any financial backing. This was on purpose by the liberals. And when you now look to the three parties, the Social Democratic Party was a very pacifist one, also led by the Vice Chancellor, uh, um, Vice Chancellor uh, Scholz, when he pleaded only to invest 1.5% for military budget from 2025. 
So this was changed uh, in his famous speech of Zeitenwende, but it did not change the question of military support. Look, the Germans have delivered on a distance from Hamburg to south of Milano about four um, <clears throat> MLRS missile launchers, 14 howitzers, 18 Leopard 2 tanks and 100 older Leopard 1 tanks and about 50 Martin IFVs. So this is not much. And there was no tasking of the armaments industry. And if we were in government, three steps. First of all, to form a coalition of European neighbor states, especially with France, Poland and United Kingdom and others who would like to go to Biden and say, we have understood, we would like to increase burden sharing on your level. So a common effort to show the Americans, the Europeans have understood and now the Americans have more leeway for social welfare for their people and to invest stronger in the Indo-Pacific. Second, we would do is to give the armaments industry leeway, also with guarantees. And third, we would deliver Taurus as a symbol, combined with two clear messages. First of all, Ukraine in the borders of 1991 and Russia must learn to lose. This means uh, this is the meaning of they have to accept the right of existence of all their neighbor states unconditionally. And the second message would be the future of Ukraine is in EU and NATO, and this is not to be negotiated. Russia has no weight in that. It is the perspective, and we need the invitation and the agreements as soon as security conditions allow. And this would be the, th the three steps we as uh, the opposition, or largest opposition party, would do if we came back to office. There's an interesting proposal that we talked about together with Aaron, um, taken from the Danish model, actually, where the opposition parties and the main governing parties agree in advance for a 10-year period the defense budget. So there's consistency for manufacturers and you send the proper market signals over a longer period exactly to, to empower the kind of companies that Germany has, which could really make a difference. Is that something you think would work in Germany? We do ask this question because um, our previous guests, um, Alexander Muller and Christian Klink, on our previous episode talked about how uh, Germany's industrial uh, base requires uh, this kind of long certainty it requires uh, budgetary commitments that go longer than a single par um, parliament. Do you buy that, um, particularly uh, with the fact that the CDU, your party, is currently leading the polls and very likely to lead the next German government? The arguments of my colleagues are building on the current legal framework. And it's true on the basis of this framework, it is impossible to have a budget which is more than one year. And our current um, constitutional court is really defending this old-fashioned stance. So we need a majority. The basic law has to be changed with a two-third majority. I don't see that. But we could work on this because it could benefit a lot. A way out would be to strengthen the so-called particular uh, budget we have spent for the armed forces, the so-called Sondervermögen and to increase it by 300 billion euros uh, by the end of this uh, decade. This would be possible. We had the leeway. Uh, nevertheless, we should then accept the debts. But it would be better to learn from best practice from our neighbors from Denmark, or especially from France. They have a seven years budget. And what we need then is a kind of planning law, where uh, in, a, in a law, the uh, military budget planning and the procurement and armaments planning is then fully fleshed 
inside the law and backed by specific uh, um, uh, monetary support. Yes, we have to overcome this because otherwise Zeitenwende would already be history or lip service. Yeah, absolutely. Now that, however, would require a degree of vision, a degree of strategy. Yes, it would. And I do sometimes ask if uh, ask the question of whether we're having the right kind of strategic discussion in Germany. We do obviously see um, the fact that um, the uh, chancellery is wedded to a certain strategy, if we can uh, call it that. Um, they have reasons for that strategic um, calculation that obviously um, you've laid out that you don't agree with um, for reasons that I think that we understand. But are we having the right strategic discussion with uh, everyday German people? Do regular Germans understand that to really um, be uh, a proper member of the EU and to um, enjoy all of the economic benefits and opportunities that, that comes with that for Ukraine and also for us, you really need NATO membership as well. You need that security guarantee to be able um, uh, to take advantage of all that. But is that a discussion that we are having the right way that um, for Ukraine and a prosperous EU, we also need to have a secure Ukraine in NATO at the same time? Brilliant question. Three layers. First of all, the German population needs orientation. Still 60% are of the opinion that we support Ukraine enough or not even enough. But a year ago, it was 75%. And there is a lack of, of orientation. And um, I speak from the experience of more than 140 visits over all Germany in 116 ex electoral districts, plus more than 80 uh, VTCs with 80 other electoral districts. So I have now seen more than 190, nearly 200 electoral districts, and also in Eastern Germany. And I see people are hungry for explanation. They do not like all the explanations, but they see this as an helpful assistance for their own uh, building of, of their opinion. Second layer, the chancellor is saying Russia must see that they are on the wrong way. This is the wrong rationality. Scholz is a very smart person, and he knows that Putin is completely calculating and very rational in his thinking. So he never will see that he's on the wrong way because he sees he's on a double win track. Ukraine is failing and many refugees are going to center Europe and are destroying the cohesion of the societies. So he must not see that he's wrong, he's seeing he's right. And third layer, and this is the strategic debate which is missing in Germany, still we have a very small coalition of countries with excellent burden sharing. I call them Krink. China, Russia, Iran and North Korea. And they are profiting from their cooperation. China is selling chips and is receiving cheap energy, cheap resources from Russia. Iran is testing missiles against Israel and is receiving technology and diplomatic support from Russia. Iran is fostering uh, the, the stance of, of Hamas and Hezbollah and is receiving leeway from uh, China and from Russia. And North Korea is delivering 1 million shells out of their 7 million and is receiving modern technology from Russia regarding their satellite systems and so on. So we must be aware that they are in a win-win situation by their mutual transport. And this crink is hollowing out the rule-based order. And therefore, we need the strategic debate if they are succeeding. BRICS already. Now, the BRICS countries are 
37% of the world's uh, GDP and 42% of the world's population, only 11 countries. And so we have now a counterpole against the rule-based order, and they are trying to hollow it out. And if we want to convince the German population, we have to take into account all these three layers I just mentioned. I think this is the task for German politicians heading forward, is really to make those links exactly in the way that you've just done between what are your standards of living at home, why we have to support Ukraine now, why we can't just actually put our heads in the sand and hope all this will go away. That is not really a strategy. The muddling through that we see at the moment from the Chancellery clinging to the world of yesterday, it's not there anymore. That world is gone. But another thing that comes to our mind is about who is the coalition at home? to actually make that argument? And how do you actually present a compelling offer to the German people that says, look, there's going to be costs to bear here, but they're not just costs, they're investments in a better future. Here's why and here's who we are to say that. What are the options lining up? And we ask that because we know that your uh, party is leading the polls. And so uh, we do and we do have an election coming up in 2025 uh, in Germany, which is sooner than you think. Uh, so what do you think... Uh, the outlook is in terms of being able to build a coalition. We have four parties in Germany who are all able to rule the country or are part of ruling the country. These are the Liberals, the Greens, the Social Democrats and uh, the Christian and Christian Social Union. However, this year a book came out from Bingener and Wehner from the Frankfurter Allgemeine and this book is called The Moscow Connection. So the Social Democratic Party and also some parts in my party have to overcome these close links to Moscow, this romanticism, but also the dependency from former mistakes. If this was the case, then the Social Democratic Party could become a partner of the CDU. But we are two elephants, and two elephants are too heavy for this country. And therefore, I am pleading for a coalition with those parties who have a clearer position on the support of Ukraine. And this is the Liberals and the Greens. However, all these parties have to arrange uh, some reforms within themselves. We cannot afford a climate ideology without economic backing. We cannot give up all our nuclear power devices without having an alternative at hand. So the Greens were very romantic and the Liberals are too much oriented to entrepreneurs and not for the social belongings and needs of our population. So each of these parties have to make compromises, also we. And therefore, it's of utmost importance that we, as the strongest party of opposition, prepare the elections in 2025. And in the meantime, we refurbish our program and are the voice for the support of Ukraine and are encouraging the Liberals and the Greens and the more sophisticated Zobar Social Democrats who are also aligned, you mentioned some names, Michael Roth or Andreas Schwarz. These are really very reasonable people who are able not only to understand, but also to refurbish uh, the very Moscow-oriented Social Democratic Party. So Zeitenwende is a task for all these state-supporting parties. And I'm working for that. And in the meantime, we have to stand with Ukraine. We have to convince the public and also to show our neighbors that there is a Germany which is able to be linked in the support and doesn't want Tallinn Initiative and the fighter jet coalition as a German free coalition. So we want to be in Tallinn and we want to be in the fighter jet coalition. 
because we are one strong Europe and we must give this message to Putin, to Ukraine and to America, transatlantic fair burden sharing and in the future with Ukraine being part of Ukraine and NATO. And there's one further aspect. If Turkey might fail or fade away in the future, Ukraine has to take over the task of the defense of the south and east flank of NATO. What are then the compromises the CDU needs to make? You mentioned all parties should make compromises. So what does the CDU need to do? And second, is one of those to do with your leadership? I'm really convinced that Friedrich Merz, who is not responsible for the last 16 years of following out the armed forces, is the right person if he is able to bring in also the Greens and the Liberals, at least those of them who are interested in transatlantic partnership, fair burden sharing, and a modernized Germany. The compromise on our side is not related to European Union, not related to NATO. It is that we focus our financial structure to the modernization of our infrastructure, <clears throat> the digital infrastructure, the uh, infrastructure of our railway system, also for the military means, but also for public transport and logistics. So that the way of <clears throat> not making debt for social welfare or for unnecessary programs must be pursued. But the black zero, we call it, the schwarze null, is not a purpose in itself. It's a purpose to make Germany strong again, modern, innovative. And the last remark regarding what we must do is that Germany is developing to one of the most appreciated countries for smart brains to migrate to. We must become attractive for the most brilliant brains in the world so that they do not bypass and that migration in our population is not seen as uh, receiving all the lost of the world, but receiving also those who want to build up a new modern democratic Germany. So we need brilliant minds and we have to work on this. Right. And that, that all goes hand in hand with making Germany an attractive partner for allies, an attractive place to live, a place that has a future. And so uncancelling that future via compromises on the debt break, the Schwarzer Null, the, the zero, black zero policy, and indeed on those attitudes to migration, social attitudes, a key to that. Roderick Kiesewetter, thank you very much for laying that out. That's a very broad strategic approach to what is a broad strategic issue and the kind of vision that uh, Germany needs. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Aaron. Thank you very much. Well, Aaron, we've heard there from Roderick Kiesewetter and from Olya Stefanishina why it is Ukraine should win. Now, Ukraine has been a huge part of the Zeitenwender, of Germany's supposed security transformation. And you know, and our listeners know by now, I think, that I head the action group Zeitenwender at uh, DGAP, which draws together politicians, officials from various ministries, and experts from Germany, but also from across Europe and around the world, as well as former politicians from around the world, to explore Germany's geostrategic choices. Now, just last Friday, we published a report that reflects on the last year's work of the action group. 
um, to assess the state of the Titan vendor. And we conclude that the Titan vendor, the security transformation that was promised by Olaf Scholz, remains seriously incomplete. But moreover, on its current track, it's also dangerously inadequate. So we recommend that despite the manufactured budgetary crisis that we see in Germany at the moment as a result of the Schuldenbremse or debt break, um, which is also being prolonged, it must be said, by the opposition, the Scholz government needs to finish the task it started. And this requires courage to be honest with the German people about the state of the world and about the state of Germany. We saw that the original Titan vendor process was actually triggered by a faulty threat assessment, the idea that Kiev would fall in three days and that there would be a threat very close to Germany's doorstep. When the Ukrainians fought back and bravely defended themselves, uh, this dissipated the threat and also took the air out of the Titan vendor transition process. Now we see a faulty threat assessment in another way. It's bordering on complacency and self-satisfaction in Berlin, which helps nobody. And as we said, we don't think that price is in the risk of Ukraine not winning for all the reasons we mentioned at the top of the show, and also for all the reasons discussed by Olya Stefanishina and Roderick Kieseveter. So Germany needs to finish the job. It needs to finish what it started and follow through on its promise. And that would actually do a lot to satisfy internal discontent, but also the frustration that's been seen among allies with this stuttering, slow and frankly stumbling transition, what some have called a Zeitlupenwender or a slow motion change. But to prepare for the future, Germany's leaders need to think bigger still. They need to define a vision for their country and for the world that Germany wants to help to shape. That might seem politically costly to do, but what we've heard from talking to a lot of German politicians is that Germans are crying out for that kind of leadership. They're crying out for the guidance that actually links issues together and offers a way to do something about it. And so, as I say, while that might seem politically costly, the cost of not doing it are far higher. It's far more expensive not to actually get this right now. But moreover, the rewards for the politicians who do this could be huge. It's the historical leaders that we remember. They're the ones who understood the fears of their people in their time and offered a way to do something about them. And we think that opportunity is open for German politicians now who can patiently explain and link issues together, explain to people why there are costs involved with solving those issues, but why they have to be paid, why they're the savings that Germany can't afford to make and how then we can go about making them into investments in our better future. And we have seen certainly, I think, that Seitenwende takes many forms. It is not um, as originally conceived, perhaps, or even as Olaf Scholz would have originally thought of it in that speech that he made uh, shortly after uh, Russia decided to try and invade Kiev and to topple the government there, a purely defense investment or a military investment. It's also uh, an investment in changing our mindset uh, as well. And we've already seen that that has at least uh, been uh, somewhat successful around um, really changing uh, how the German public views things like weapons deliveries to Ukraine, views even Ukraine itself um, and its place within Europe. We have certainly seen this too. We do need leadership to really be able to take uh, the public all the way there. And as you mentioned, this faulty threat assessment, the idea that, I mean, what would have happened if that threat assessment was true? We'd be looking at a site in Venda, you know, occurring with uh, a Russian-occupied territory right on the border of a NATO state, far, far closer to Berlin uh, than it currently is. And I think that uh, German leadership, particularly in the chancellery, needs to ask themselves if that would be preferable, if that's the situation that they would prefer rather than the current one. Because if we don't 
don't see the kind of commitment to Ukrainian victory and in, and to Ukrainian inclusion in the wider family, both EU and NATO, then you know we we do risk that original threat assessment coming true. So this is our opportunity, I think, to 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 prevent that from happening and to make the most of the situation that we currently have and the opportunity that we currently have, particularly with Ukraine. That's right. But the other opportunity that pertains to this situation comes from the side of the Titan vendor that succeeded. And that side is the opening up of new horizons within German public debate and the opening of new conversations about what is possible and what is necessary. And that is a genie that can't be put back in the bottle. And that's precisely where German politicians who do want to see not only the Titan vendor completed, but this bigger fundamental shift towards a grand strategy for Germany, a vision for Germany and the kind of world it wants to create. That's what they can draw on. And it's those conversations that we try and amplify and that we need to encourage because it's in the interests of Germany, in the interests of Europe and of the democratic world. There's no going back. There's too much has happened already. <laughs> so, and, and we will be here to continue um, pushing that along, of course. We will. And so from both of us on Berlin Side Out, and I'm sure from our producer, Hendrik Werner, who's sitting with us as well, um, with this is our last episode of 2023. We'll be back to finish the first season in the new year. But for now, from both Aaron and I, from Vilnius and from Berlin, Frohe Weihnachten. Absolutely. Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, again, thank you very much to our project assistant, Julian Stuckler, our, preferred, our producer, Henrik Banner, and of course, uh, to our listeners. We'll be back in the new year with the rest of our first season, where we get transatlantic with check-ins with London, Washington, and Ottawa. Again, Frohe Weihnachten and tschüss.